given you an encouragement of how this happened. Steve's given me the permission to do that. Um, he, had an, he had an email this afternoon. I'll read it to you because otherwise I'm going to miss out details. But this is amazing. Okay. So, hi Steve. You might remember we met briefly in Tenerife. Just wanted to share this with you. After we got back from holiday, I clicked on your website at Waldronfield and listened to the testimonies. I then sent the link to our pastor in the church we attend, Tain Free Church. Alistair, our pastor, then posted the link on the church Facebook page. Hope you're following me. A girl, she's about 35, who's married with three kids, came along to our holiday Bible club last summer. She was brought up in a Christian home but hadn't really gone to church much over the past years. She clicked onto our church website and then onto the Facebook page where she found the link to the I Am Second Testimonies. Hands up if you remember me showing those a few years ago. Yeah, on the, on the screen, yeah. So that's what they were. They're on our website if you ever want to go look at them under Testimonies. She, start, she listened to them at the start of December and has been coming to church ever since, sometimes with her husband and kids. This week, she became a new convert, a new creation. Absolutely wonderful. God is good. Home life will be different for her and will present new situations and challenges. So please pray that God will do the same amazing work in her husband and kids. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Isn't that amazing? I make a random website, Steve goes to preach uh, a random, at a random time. They put it on their, on their website, then goes onto their Facebook page, just You just can't put the jigsaw pieces together that easily, but it's a reminder of how God moves and works, isn't it? It's a reminder that with God, all things are possible. And I was greatly encouraged when Steve sent that to me. And uh, I hope you'll be encouraged. I hope you'll be encouraged. If you you have digital media, if you know what I'm talking about, maybe you're just going, what on earth is digital media? (laughs) Come and see me afterwards. But if you have Facebook or Twitter, use it for God's glory. If you have another way, if you've got your own website, use it. Um, If you have an opportunity to speak for Christ using real words with real people in real situations, use them. (coughs) And even if you don't have those opportunities, but you have an opportunity to stand for Christ wherever he's placed you, use it. Because you never know what God will do through that. It really dovetails in actually, Steve, with what I want to talk about tonight. Um, few stories have challenged me and the lives of many Christian believers in recent years uh, more than the story of Jim Elliot and his friends who left their lives behind to take the gospel to the Huarani people uh, of, of Ecuador. It's back in the 1950s. It was a time when few had ever even made contact with these people, these remote people, and fewer still had lived to tell the tale. Nevertheless, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, Ed McCulley and Pete Fleming had such a heart for God, had such a passion for the Gospel, that they gave up prospective careers, lives, turned their back on Western comforts, turned their back on their own personal dreams, their own aspirations, for the sake of the gospel. They sacrificed everything to take the gospel to these relatively unknown people. And they were met with aggression and ultimately they were met with their death. 
They gave up their lives to serve the saviour that they loved and they paid the ultimate price. They were savagely cut down while attempting to reach this, uh, this tribe, the Alka Indians. Their bodies were found days later, face down, floating in the river. When you think about a life lived out for Jesus in, in such a kind of extraordinary way, it's a great challenge to your own life, isn't it? If you're a Christian, it is to me at least. But you know, their story is a story that's been repeated throughout the whole of history. All throughout history, living for Christ in the fullest sense of what that means, being ready and willing to stand and be counted for Jesus, it's always meant suffering and persecution in this world to some extent and some degree. Jesus said it himself. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. John 16.33 Jim Elliot and his friends discovered it and will discover it if we seek to serve Christ in our generation, if we live out the lives that God calls us to live, being salt and being light in the world. And that kind of outrageously unashamed, bold witnessing for Christ it doesn't sit well when it comes to keeping the peace. The Bible calls us to be peacemakers. So when you read these words in the book of Luke, when you hear Jesus saying what he says here, then it almost seems like there's a conflict. But there isn't. We're reminded in James 4 that friendship with the world is enmity against God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world, James says, becomes an enemy of God. You could go to 1 John 2.15, where John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we need to shift our love. And loving God requires us to take off the spectacles of modern society, which says, you go out and get what you can for yourself. Look after number one. Loving God requires us to do something different than seeking our own benefit, than seeking our own comfort, than seeking our own peace. It requires seeking God's will, seeking his desires seeking to please him. And you know, when we do that, only then will we truly find satisfaction in this life. But here's the headline. Here's the headline. When we do that, when we say, I'm going to live for Jesus, I'm going to stand for him, I don't care what happens, I'm going to nail my colours to the mast, I'm going to be that Christian who's not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we live like that, even if we're the most placid person in the universe, there'll be a response to it. And the response, more often than not, will be division. So in one sense it's true, we're to live out our lives showing love to those around us and trying wherever possible to create peace. But in another sense, very much so, without doubt, if we're living out the gospel, if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing in this dark world, if we're, if we're being light, if we're being salt, 
then whether we like it or not, whether we welcome it or not, whether, whether we, we're ready for it or not, division is going to happen. Even with those we love the most. And that's a hard truth. But it's the truth. Because Jesus tells it to us here. We've heard Jesus over the past few weeks challenge us in a number of ways through some of the parables he's been talking about. We've been challenged to live being rich toward God. We've heard him challenge us not to worry about our lives and how often do we do that. Uh, And the things going on in our lives, big or small, significant or insignificant. But to seek the kingdom of God. We've heard him challenge us as to where our treasure is, to make sure that the treasure that we have is not in the things of this world, but it's in the things of heaven. We've heard Jesus challenge us to be expectant, to be ready for his return, which could happen at any moment, in in any situation. So in short, Jesus has said to us, you know, following me, Following me, it, it might cost you earthly wealth. You need to, you need to realise that. That's the cost of being a disciple. One of those things is, it may cost you earthly wealth. It may cost you your career. It, it might make you look a fool to those around you who say to you, well, why, why are you doing that with what you have? Why don't you use it for yourself? And when you say, well, I want to glorify God, people are going to go, what are you talking about? Are you insane? It might cost you everything. Your time, your energy. But here Jesus tells us potentially there is a greater cost we need to grasp and prepare for because it might just cost you a relationship. I wonder what went through your mind when you heard the words of Jesus say, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. What went through my mind as I read that text was, well, Jesus, didn't you come to bring peace on earth? We think about peace on earth a lot at Christmas. We celebrate Christmas. The angels declare that his name shall be called. Wonderful. We like that. Counselor. We like that. Mighty God. That's good too. Everlasting Father. Yeah, that's pretty good. Prince of Peace. Wow, that's amazing. And so that idea of Jesus coming to bring peace is one we're all very, very comfortable with, isn't it? And it's one that none of us have a problem with. We're happy to promote that in public with our friends. But this peace that Jesus came to bring that the angels declared, guess what? It's not for everybody. How do we know that's true? If you keep reading in Luke chapter 2, verse 14... The angels say this, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favour rests. Peace to those on whom his favour rests. Okay, so Jesus came to bring peace peace on earth to those on whom his favour rests. Well, who's that? Another translation puts it, Peace among men with whom he is pleased. How do you please God? Faith in God. How you please God. Hebrews 11 Verse 6, but without faith, it is impossible to please him, please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, 
and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So Christmas, in a way, it doesn't, it doesn't bring peace to all. Listen to how John Piper puts it. I found this really helpful. This is, this is judgment, Jesus said, so he quotes a verse first, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Or as the aged Simeon said when he saw the child Jesus, behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is spoken against that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Oh, how many there are who look out on a bleak and chilly Christmas day and see no more than that. He came to his own and his own received him not, but to as many as received him. To them he gave the power to become the sons of God to as many as believed on his name. It was only to his disciples that Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The people who enjoy the peace of God that surpasses all understanding are those who in everything, by prayer and supplication, let their requests be made known to God. Close quotes. So the answer to the question, did Jesus come to bring peace on earth, is yes and no. Yes to those who would believe, but no to those who continue in unbelief. You won't have peace in this world outside of knowing Jesus as the Lord and Saviour of your life. You will never, ever, ever grasp it. You will never have it. So here we have Jesus stating something altogether different about why he came. And what Jesus says here, it it doesn't contradict what the angels declared about him. He goes on to describe this division he came to bring, not only in a sense of division from the world around us, but also from our own families. And when you read verses 52 and 53, if you've got Luke uh, 12 open, the heckles kind of go up, the defences kind of go up, because we're all fiercely protective of our families, right? We love our families. Mostly, we could take or leave some of our relatives. But we're who we are because of them, for better or for worse. Many of us, sadly not myself, but for many of us, our families are the, the very people who, who even, maybe even introduced us to the things of God. So when Jesus talks about himself this way, when he talks about coming to this world to cause division... Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. Well, that's understandable. Uh, in-laws are a bit of a nuisance at times. And daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. It seems very unusual and strange at first hearing and maybe a bit concerning at face value. It's helpful when you go to Matthew 10. This is expanded a bit more. You hear Jesus say in verse 21, this is what he says, Now, brother will deliver up brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death and you will be hated by all for my namesake but he who endures to the end will be saved. What's the cause of all this familial hatred? At its epicentre is the recognition of a love for Jesus. It's family looking at you as a believer and they see that your love for Jesus is greater and more passionate and more fervent than your love for them. And they don't like it. Jesus continues to make the point of love in the same chapter, verse 37. He says, He who loves father or mother more than me 
is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So what makes us worthy of Jesus? What does a life uh, lived out for Christ look like? It looks like love for Jesus above all things. It's a life lived where I love Jesus so much, more than my own mother, more than my own family, my father, husband, wife, children, everything. In fact, my love, my love for Jesus should be so extreme and complete and unbounding that my love for anyone else, blood relative or not, should look like hate in comparison. In a couple of chapters, we're going to think about this again because Jesus uses some strong language to make this same point. I think it's chapter 14. It's not that we shouldn't love our families. We should love our families. They're precious. They're special. The point is the measure of our love for Jesus. Because any, any love that comes before a love for God is, is idolatry. It's worshipping and loving the creation rather than the creator. And the outcome of doing that, the outcome of, of loving Jesus, uh, in the first place of our lives is an obvious one. Even our families may turn against us. Now that's division. But here, here's where it gets interesting. Because the truth is, when we love Jesus first, our love for our loved ones is so much more complete. I was going to say perfect in the biblical sense, because that's what it means, but I think complete is more helpful for us with the language that we deal with. I can only... Um, love my wife and my children as I ought to when I'm loving God first with all of my heart. I can only love you, the church, as I ought to when I'm loving God first, when I'm putting Him first. If I'm not loving God first and foremost, then my love for my family, my love for you as the church is going to be tainted. It's going to be going to be drawn away because of my own sinful desires, but when I love God first, when I seek Him first, when He's the primary focus, then my love for my family and my love for you and everybody else, it gets filtered. It's purer, it's more patient, it's more forgiving, it's more gentle, and you can go on. Jesus said, do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? And if, if we're honest, I think our answer would be yes. Jesus, I, I do think that's why you came. Surely Jesus should be saying, I've come to comfort families, I've come to heal broken relationships, deal with those wounds that exist that, that nobody else can touch. That makes sense to us, that seems logical and loving, and maybe that's what many of us would like this passage to say, but it doesn't say that. And like it or not, this passage talks about division, not reconciliation. So what kind of division is Jesus getting at here? We're talking specifically about the division that takes place as a direct result of a decision to follow him. You see, the gospel divides. It divides friends, work colleagues, neighbours, families. But the point is, there is something more important in the world than peace. We always want to keep the peace, don't we? I want to keep the peace. I don't want hassle. 
I don't want aggravation. I don't, I don't want ag- aggressive discussions with people. That is the last thing I want in the world. I hope you're the same. I want to be a peacemaker wherever I go. I fail to do that very often, by the way. But there's something more important in the world than peace. And what's more important in the world than peace is truth. The truth of God. John 8, 31, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. Steve, I remember you doing a sermon on this. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. The truth of the gospel is the most important message the world will ever hear. But it's the last thing the world, sorry, it's the last thing the world wants to listen to. Jesus said, I, I came to send fire on earth, on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. That fire of God hadn't yet happened. You know, when you read that, it's a bit puzzling, again, or, or when you first look at it. One day we know Jesus will return to judge the world by fire. But here, as Jesus speaks of fire, although he is speaking of judgment, he's not speaking of that judgment. He's speaking of the cross. You see, God was going to rain down the fire of judgment for the sin of the whole world. That's why Jesus came. But it wasn't going to be on sinful man at this point in history. And we're going to think about that in a few weeks' time. When we get finally to the chapters that deal with the, the crucifixion and Christ going to the cross. It wasn't going to be on sinful man at this point in history. It was going to be brought down upon Jesus. And now in verse 50, as Jesus says these words, he says, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. And in verse 50, he's looking forward in his mind's eye to that judgment for the sin of the whole world. He's looking forward to the cross. He knows the agony that he's, he's going to endure. He's looking, he's looking onward to it. He knows the pain. He knows the, 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 the misery and the torment that his soul would endure. He knows the rejection that he's going to face. And he says these words, I have a baptism to be baptised with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now when, when Jesus is talking about baptism here, he's not talking about water baptism. He's using picture language to describe what's going to happen to him at the cross. He's talking about being plunged down deep into the sufferings and the agony and the pain and the judgment for our sins. That's the baptism he's referring to. That's the baptism we see him praying to avoid in the Garden of Gethsemane as he sweat great drops of blood and as he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Faith in me, Jesus says, it's going to take you down at times a painful road of division in the world. 
But the road that I'm on, the road that I'm taking, you don't want to go down. And I'm on this road so that you never have to. You may lose temporary earthly family relationships, but what I go to do will bring you into God's family for all time. So Jesus says, I've come to bring division. And that doesn't sound like good news. We like unity. We like everybody to be happy all of the time. We get a great length to keep the status quo. But you cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ and continually live like that. Living to and publicly acknowledging the truth of the Bible will place you directly in the firing line of society. There's no doubt about that because we live in a godless world. And it's tempting to think that this call to discipleship only comes to those people who are under extreme conditions. But Jesus calls each one of us every day to live like this. Mark 8, 34, Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, that's you if you're a Christian, and me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So here's the question. As I draw to a close, here's the question. If the cost of discipleship, if the cost of following Jesus in the way that he calls us to, is so potentially, so incredibly high, if the decision to follow Christ inevitably leads to division, maybe to even those that we love the most, why should we follow? Why did the disciples leave everything behind and follow Jesus at the sound of his call? Why did the early Christians suffer persecution and death to follow him? Why throughout the centuries have there always been some people, men and women, willingly who accepted the cost of standing up for Christ and risking it all, very often paying the ultimate cost, as Jim Elliot and his friends did, as the 12 Christians, you may remember, who were brutally executed at the end of last year by IS, because they refuse to renounce the name of Christ and embrace Islam, one of which was a a 12-year-old boy, the son of a ministry team leader who planted nine churches. Why would anyone do that? Why would we love Jesus like that? What's the motivation? Why should I do that for God? Why should I be willing to be rejected by my family? for the sake of Christ, the very ones I love the most? That's the question, isn't it? The answer is simple. Because God's love for me and God's love for you cost him the life of his son. God the Father turned away from his one and only son who he loved. He allowed him to be tortured. He allowed him to be beaten to within an inch of his life. He allowed him to be mocked and spat upon. He turned his face away from him in his hour of greatest need. 
And he allowed him to have nails forced through his hands and his feet as they lifted him up for all to see. The reason I should love the Lord with all my heart this evening, holding nothing back, is simple. Because when Jesus cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? The answer is my name and your name. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. (laughs) That we might become the righteousness of God. Can you get your head around that? What is your, your heart's response to that? What is mine? I want to finish this evening with the words of Nate Saint, one of the missionaries who lost their lives with Jim Elliot on January the 8th, 1956. Nate was an accomplished pilot. At one point he was a commercial pilot for American Airlines. He said this, If God would grant us the vision, the word sacrifice would disappear from our lips and thoughts. We would hate the things that seem now so dear to us. Our lives would suddenly be too short. We would despise time-robbing distractions and charge the enemy with all our energies in the name of Christ. May God help us ourselves by the eternities that separate the Alcas from a comprehension of Christmas and him who, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor so that we might, through his poverty, be made rich. What's more important than peace in the world? What's more important than peace in our families? Truth. Because the truth will set men, women, young people free. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you, first of all, for such a challenging passage It challenges my own heart greatly. I pray, Lord, I know I haven't done this justice this evening, but I pray that you would, by your Spirit, move in each of our hearts and do what I can't. Give us such a love for you. Such a love for you, Lord. Lord, I want to pray for anyone here who's never never confessed you, never, never asked for forgiveness, never repented of sin. Lord, I thank you that today, right now, you're still a God who loves to forgive. Lord, if if that's us tonight, help us to turn from our sin and trust in you. Help us to love you because you've done everything for us when you sent your Son. Lord, thank you for who you are. We'll never, ever be able to repay you for what you've done for us but help us to live lives that show you are the most important person, the most important thing. 
Lord, forgive us for the times that we fail to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.